Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host. And I guess we're also the guests for today as well. Austin Ye and Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Classic intro line. One line that I say. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be doing things a little bit differently, guys. Like Austin said, I think we just saw the opportunity given our last two episodes. Uh, we're kind of related to this topic. Anyway, so we just saw the opportunity to talk a little bit today, more so about how to get started in real estate investing, right? So I think we'd like to do a couple of these like random episodes every once a quarter or so. And uh, part of it is um, we just didn't have anything planned for this week. So uh, here we are today. So I think, you know, starting off with our last couple of guests, right? So we had Ishan and Sid, our last two guests, really, right? So Ishan and Sid, they started off with really nothing. And they kind of, you know, there's value in having two people on a real estate transaction deal, right? So they were able to leverage each other, where one person was able to qualify for the mortgage, one person was able to pull from lines of credit to buy a house, bird. You're able to split the roles and responsibilities, and you're also able to grow probably twice as fast than if you do, if you were to go at it alone. Right? At least that's my opinion that you can kind of grow quite fast if you go uh, with a partner. Um, so I think that provided a lot of people with kind of insight. And at least that, that was our objective. It's you know provide people with insight as to how you get started in real estate investing when you really don't have any money, right? Um, yeah, and and for a lot of people, the first limiting, I guess for a lot of millennials, I'd say not people in general, but for a lot of millennials, the most one of the most limiting factors of getting into real estate is the capital capacity, right? Like not being not having enough capital break in the market. So just to reiterate, let, let's let's bounce back to Ishan and Sid's story. They had about like 12 or 13k saved up at yeah. that time that they wanted to deploy. So one of the unique things that they did was is that they took advantage of the work from home situation in the pandemic. And I could foresee that if you're listening to this podcast, it's coming out in one August, probably the next four or five months, you could still probably do this strategy because the majority of people are going to work from home is what they did is they got a work from home letter from their boss and they actually started to house hack, right? Like, of course, you need to have your boss on board as well. Um, but for most people, they are working from home full time. And once they have that letter from the employer saying that they're able to work from home, in a lot of cheaper cities, they could put 5% down. Obviously, that's not the case in Toronto, but in, in places like Windsor and Sudbury, even if you're working in Toronto or your company's in Toronto, you could make the argument that you are going to work from home in a cheaper um, city and buy a multifamily there for only 5%. <laughs> so, so the key here um, is, is that it does need to be a place like your 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 letter of employment does need to say that you can permanently work from home, yeah. right? And so I think you and I, Austin, we uh, let's not go into that. But you know, other people have tried and failed at the same approach. So it's not it's not a risk free approach, right? Because it is kind of still subjective to how the banks interpret your role. Like, is it just work from home for another like four or five months and then you're going to be back? And then really, are you going to live in Windsor or wherever you're going to buy? Right? So it has to be like, especially if you were pre COVID. You were truly like work from home. You can truly live in Windsor or Sudbury or one of these other markets, right? And commute or not commute, sorry, work from home, then you're fine. Otherwise, they say that you need to be within kind of a 60 to 90 minute radius of wherever you work, right? Which isn't necessarily the end of the world for some people, but for a lot of a lot of us that like work in downtown Toronto, good luck buying in like Windsor or Sudbury as like under that argument, right? But if Sean was in that situation, um, the other thing is like, yeah, time was also on their favor, right? 
So they were able to ride a great wave in the real estate investing world, refinance, um, you know, pull out all the capital and kind of keep growing their portfolio. But hindsight's always 2020, right? So when I'm sure when they started their investing journey, they probably didn't think the real estate market was going to do what it did in the last year, year and a half, right? Another great thing to add on to that is, is so limited capital, as you were saying, like your intention needs to be like, you're going to live there pretty much not as a forever home, but your employer says you can work permanently. If your employer changes their mind, then obviously that's another story. Um, but one one cool thing about putting 5% down is you're allowed to get gifted money at that point because now it's a primary residence, right? Whereas in, in investment properties, you can't necessarily get a gift from your family members or friends. You need to prove that you had proof of down payment in there for, I think it was my, you know better than me, but three months with most banks, some yeah. banks, 60 days, some even 30 days if you're refining. But uh, I know when you, when you start buying your primary residence and putting 5% down, then now you're able to actually borrow that money. And in Nishan's case, they actually leveraged off of, since they were partners, he leveraged the money off of his brother in lines of credit to afford that property. Yep. And I think the other key there is the type of property that you buy if you're going with the CMHC finance approach, right? Because CMHC basically charges a 4% lender fee, right? Like that's basically what it is, 3 to 4%, right? And for the most part, if you're trying to burr, you've got to now lift the value by a lot more for you to be able to pull out any kind of mm-hmm. renovation funds, right? So there's two ways that you can go about it. One is a mortgage plus improvements, um, which will basically allow you to put your renovation funds directly into the mortgage. But the other approach, which I kind of like, is if you're going to go CMHC finance and 5% down, you might as well buy a property that's pretty turnkey, right? And as long as it's a cash cow, right? Which is exactly what Sean did when he got started in Waterloo, right? So I think those are kind of our, our well, main- Well, that was in Windsor, actually. Sorry, sorry, Windsor, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those are our main takeaways from Ishan's journey and, and, and the episode with Ishan and Sid. I think uh, it's a great case study for how you can get started partnering up, whether it's a brother or family friend or, or a friend in general. You know, you guys can go quite far and you can kind of split your roles and responsibilities, divide and conquer and, and just kind of like kill it, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, here's a unique thought that I just had as well. You could actually put 20% down and, and get the gift in money as well because it's a primary residence, right? So like if you have enough lines of credit, in this case... Um, I guess we should mention one tip that we do recommend. I, I guess you probably recommend your students. I recommended people when I was coaching prior is just to always max out your lines of credit in terms of capacity, right? Like uh, availability and capital. It doesn't mean you need to use it. But in a yeah. situation like that, they could have fully levered up. And that would have solved that problem in which they can't refi their money if it's only like 5% in. They need a significant equity lift, right? They could have bought a decent fixer up or nothing crazy. Obviously, you're starting to overextend yourself a bit capital, uh, capital wise, but that's a possibility as well. Yes. So I'm just going to like, I'm going to step away from commenting on that just because it's kind of like a gray area in the mortgage world where I don't necessarily want to say something on. But yeah, for sure. Like there's a, there's a strategy that works for everyone. I think it's just important to plan it out properly. Right. Um, and the mortgage world is tough. Like these guys, like everyone wants so much documentation. You got to do everything right and like buy the book per se. Right. So it's just important to just make sure you kind of structure everything right. So, so that was Ishan and Sid's journey. And that was one ex- excellent case study. And then the next was Adam Shoji, right? So Adam someone who, who, I mean, just to reiterate from this last episode, he started in November of 2020. He's wholesaled the deal and he's uh, purchased his first property and he's about six months into a coaching journey. I'm sure the next six months, because coaching is, or, or this entire journey is really something that goes kind of exponential, right? So you, you start layering on one by one by one, and then boom, you're just at like 10, like a year later, and you're like, what the fuck happened, right? Um, so. 
So he's someone that, you know, Adam went a different, a different route, right? Which is why we wanted to kind of showcase both of them. I mean, they're both being coached by Corey, but like, it's a little, like Adam invested early on more heavily into kind of his self-education, right? And he wanted to, I guess, prevent himself from making any kind of errors along the way, right? So he, he's done really good for the first six months. He comes from a completely non like finance, non real estate industry related kind of experience, right? So for what he's done, he's done really good. I think that's the kind of journey that if you're someone that has a little bit more capital, right? So Sean said we're no capital. Adam showed you someone I think that had access to more capital when he first got started. Um, it, it's a journey that is a little bit more foolproof, right? Because like, I don't know, Austin, I don't know about you, but like my first couple of investment properties, I made a shit ton of mistakes, right? That slowed me down significantly enough, right? So like I do coach a fair amount of people that are brand new into the real estate investing world. They're investing in coaching. And as a result, they're trying to just prevent themselves from making any errors, right? Totally agree. And we we always say this, like there are a couple of ways to learn. I'm not going to talk about it again, but Adam took the way of paid coaching. And I think that's uh, even even if it's your first investment property, if you want to minimize the investor risk, which is obviously like quite a large risk being new to real estate investing, just not knowing enough, then investing money in yourself is going to help mitigate that risk. And yes, that is going to cost some money. But ideally, if you hire the right coach, you're going to make that money back tenfold. Right. And I, I, I don't like to just like preach coaching and tell people you need to get a coach because you really don't. There's a lot of people who are like absolutely crushing it without a coach like Aaron Bay. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if he has a coach now. I don't think so. Still, he he was in a previous episode. He's absolutely crushing it. Right. And just as because he's he's self-motivated and he's willing to consistently keep himself accountable and educate himself. And there's, there's one other topic that I think I'll just add in here. Right. It goes back to a coaching call that I had with a podcast listener yesterday. So uh don't take offense to this, but basically uh, there's two main lessons that came out of it. One of which yesterday was she was using a local realtor to buy in outside of the GTA markets, right? So she was like using a local realtor to buy in Oshawa who didn't know anything about the Oshawa market. She was using them to buy in Kitchener. didn't know anything about the Kitchener market. And then she was asking me what I thought about a neighborhood within Kitchener. And I was like, I have no idea about these different neighborhoods within Kitchener. Like, sure, there's things that we could look out for when we go to visit like a neighborhood, but ultimately you need to rely on like local realtors and local property managers to get a solid understanding of that neighborhood. Right. So I think early on in your journey, it feels like saving that like $5,000, $2,000, $100, dollars whatever it is, it seems like it's so important. But when you're dealing with like hundreds of thousands of dollars as an acquisition, don't be, I think they call it like penny wise, right? Like don't go after like the small, like couple dollars and like being frugal. I know Austin's huge on frugality, but I think there's a time and place to spend money. And I don't think you kind of want to penny pinch everywhere along the way, right? Because I, I basically told them, I'm like, look, could you just not pay another realtor like $300 for like an hour of their time and like pick their brain about like all the different neighborhoods in this area and like potentially prevent yourself from making like a 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 error, right? So I think that's another important part of that journey. It's like, don't be, don't be afraid to kind of either invest in yourself or pay for, um, pay for assistance when you need it, right? So coaching is one side, but, you know, even with the realtor, don't try to like earn a, earn a what, what do they call it? Like a cutback or whatever cash back on like closing stuff like that. Just leave all that stuff. And like, if you're using someone that's good and worth their money, like it should, it should benefit you way more down the road. Exactly. Um, I, I know you're doing some coaching right now. What are some common, I guess, I'm not going to say obstacles, obstacles is the right. What are some common obstacles that people find themselves in when they just get started and in investing, which if you guys haven't guessed by now, this is what this episode's all about. <laughs> Yeah. So I think, okay. So there's actually two main things that I would say every investor when they're first getting started trips them up. One is going to be financing because the amount of investors I talk to that come to me and they're like, Hey, I bought a house. I'm going to use gifted funds. 
this is actually just happening to me this weekend. He's like, oh, I mean, let's talk food. about that. Because there's so many misconceptions about the yeah, financing when you're fun. buying. Yeah, it's crazy. And we had that too. You know, we've actually gotten ourselves in positions where we're like, oh, fuck, we're not able to do that. Okay, so what do we do now? I was I was so guilty of this early on because I was like, yeah, like my income's fine. Like I'm going to be able to qualify for mortgages. Like I'm not, I'm not even going to bother like pre-qualification, like talking to a broker until like I actually have a house, right? So anyways, I got a call on, I think this was Sunday. Um, a previous client of mine spoke to me he spoke to me about buying a principal residence in Oshawa. So I was like, cool, that's perfectly fine. You go ahead, gifted funds, not a problem. Okay? And then he decided to buy a house in Thunder Bay as an investment property. And he's like, yeah, so like, so like the money's going to be gifted funds. And I'm like, what do you mean it's going to be gifted funds? Like, you, just, you can't just do that. And I told him, I'm like, remember we talked about this for your principal residence, so it's fine. And then he's like, oh, okay, I guess we'll go with the B lender. I'm like, well, like B lenders aren't going to touch it either because like it's like anti-money laundering, like this entire like legislation, right? So like, He's in a situation where like, we're going to try and find him a deal there, but it might have to be like private funds, right? So the main thing is, is that if you're taking gifted, if you're buying an investment property, you need to have those funds yourself and it needs to be saved up. Theoretically, it cannot be pulled from lines of credit. It could be from a HELOC. Yes. Right. But that's, yeah. that's assuming you already have your equity built yeah. up. For most people, that's not the case. So you need to prove that you have that funds liquid, whether that be in a stock portfolio um, and RRSPs. Yeah. Like yeah. anything, like anything liquid, right? Yeah. Just not not borrowed funds or gifted. So I think like the financing, I mean, financing as a whole becomes more challenging the more properties you have, but source of down payment becomes less of a concern because generally you have a HELOC here, you have a HELOC there, you've kind of got like different things that you could point to as like, here's my source of funds, right? Um, whether or not you, you actually use them or not is a different story, right? But th- that's the financing side. But from a coaching's perspective, I'd say 90% of the, the, the kind of topics and conversations that I have with like people that, I'm not talking about the, the students I, I coach under Corey McKinnon, talking about students that have individual like coaching calls booked with me, 90% of the time it's mindset, right? So there's investors that will say, hey, I started off in Oshawa and now I'm looking at Newmarket and then I'm looking at Kitchener and I'm like, well, like you're literally like probably a mile away in each, like a, like 10 more offers in each city and you probably would have got a deal. Instead, you spent the last like six months like shopping around and going different market to different market. And then there's investors that are just like, they'll find the perfect deal and they'll just be like scared. Right. It's kind of like the analysis paralysis. And I'm sure we like we both had that early on. Right. And you kind of just you need to surround yourself with people that are doing the same things that give you the confidence to act on that. Right. Mm -hmm. I would say in in my perspective, one obstacle I find that people have is is focus. And that's kind of what you were saying, right? Like jumping from place to place. And and another one. and, And since you already touched on that, another one is is not knowing their constraints and using the constraints as uh, an excuse not to take action or to get around into investing into real estate. And we talked a bit earlier about capital constraints, right? And like how it's still possible to break into the real estate market with capital constraints. Another common one is, is that I don't want to drive four hours out um, to invest mm-hmm. or three hours out. And I get that quite frequently. And yeah. you don't you don't need to constantly drive three or four hours out. It would be nice to at the beginning to build your power team, right? Which we'll get into a bit later on the podcast on a high level. But you don't need to constantly drive back and forth. People start making misconceptions in themselves. A couple of constraints that most people have, first and foremost, as we talked about earlier, is financing. If you are not working a, a full-time job or you're working on a contract, that's going to make financing a bit harder, Right. And then if financing harder, you just need to partner up with someone who can qualify, right? Or find a unique, work with the mortgage broker who might be able to find a unique strategy to make things work. 
but more likely than not, it's just going to be partnering with someone. Another one is um, capital constraints. Well, if you can invest in Toronto, look further out. If you can invest in Hamilton, look further out. If you can invest in Windsor, look further north of Ontario, right? Like it's just about finding what you can afford. This is the one thing I'll say to that often is because I, I do get that a lot as well. It's people that say, I don't want to drive four hours. And then honestly, sometimes my response is honestly, if you don't want to drive four hours, then don't. Like if you want to invest closer to home, it's kind of like the journey of saying, I want to be a millionaire, but I don't want to work hard. Right. It's just like, look, man, like yeah. you want to buy investment properties. This is your situation with the amount of capital that you have. Right. Like you, you can't afford anything within like a close proximity. Right. It's either you put in the time and, and there's so many, and this is actually good thing I'm talking about. There's so many students that I'll have a conversation with where I'm like, dude, you're like 25 years old. You're single. You don't have any kids. You're just kind of sitting at home. Literally nothing is preventing you from driving four hours on the weekend or even six hours. Like I, I've driven six hours before, right? Drive six hours each way. That's a one day trip, right? So it's just like, look, ultimately all this stuff, as much as we can talk, we've talked quite a bit about real estate investing on this podcast already. And like so many people have shared their different journeys. Um, and it might seem like, like everyone see, everyone shares kind of the rewards and the perks and the success and everything that comes out of real estate investing. But like we've both grinded and every single guest that's been on a podcast has grinded, right? And that's where it all just comes down to. It's how bad do you want it, right? And if you want exactly. it bad, you will grind. Right? And at the beginning in every business, they have its pain, right? Like it, it, it's the reality of any business. You got to bootstrap, you got to work hard, you got to build your systems down. But over the long term, obviously, that's not the goal. It's just for the first couple of months, at the very least, you need to make some sacrifices. You're in the wrong industry if you're not willing to make a drive because the drive is the least thing that you're going to be worried about when things cost more money in the property that goes wrong. I'd be more worried about that than just driving four hours, right? So the real, the real topic for today was really just about like how people can get started in real estate, right? There's a couple of different ways that we're going to talk about. So we're just going to quickly touch on the bird because everyone already knows about that. Um, we're going to talk about wholesaling, flipping, and Airbnb, right? So I'll, I'll just quickly highlight the burr, right? So everyone kind of understands if you if you just if you join the podcast kind of in our later episodes, go back and listen to I think it was like our first like ten episodes or so where we talked about the different parts of the burr, um, going through like the buy, the renovate, rent, refinance, and repeat journey, right? But really for for new investors, this is for people that have like limited capital, right? So you have two main routes. One is going to be with private capital. And private capital will essentially allow you to lever up basically to like 90, maybe 95% loan to value. And if you're really good, you could get 100% plus renovations, right? So anything's possible in the private capital world. Um, some of the challenge will be when you eventually go to refinance, then the banks can, like they don't usually, but they can ask you um, for the 20% down payment source of funds, right? So that could be a challenge, but worst case, you're kind of looking at alternative lenders, right? But private capital is a great way to get started if you don't have capital yourself. And if you have another source of good active income, right? And, and the reason I outlined that is because private capital, let's say you raise about 100K in private capital, you gotta be able to service about a thousand bucks a month in interest, right? Or somewhere around- If, if you're capital. doing monthly payments instead of a balloon. True, yeah. true. So if you're doing a balloon payment, that's fine too. But now your cost, like that deal, so let's just say we're buying a 300K house, right? And Austin's using private capital and I'm using like my own like 20% down payment funds, right? Um, Austin's got to factor in the private capital inputs into that into his numbers, right? To see what his net investment is after the burr, right? Versus if I'm using my own capital or the second source that you can use for a burr, a joint venture partner, I don't really have to factor in interest and all those holding costs, right? So it does make the burr a little bit more expensive and it makes it hard to find those unicorn deals, those perfect burrs, right? Which is why like I, I generally like to go, or at a point in time, we like to go with the joint venture partner route, right? So joint venture partners, you need what you need to factor in here is that like not everyone, and we just talked about this, 
not everyone has the time to grind it out and get into real estate investing. Right. And the other reality is it's not worth everyone's time. Right. Cause I had this conversation actually with the same individual yesterday um, where I basically said, like, look at like doctors and lawyers, it's not that they can't invest in real estate investing. Right. It's that if their hourly rate as a lawyer is like a thousand dollars an hour, whatever it is, right. Usually not, but like whatever thousand dollars an hour. And this entire real estate investing journey, going out, finding a deal, driving to the location once or twice to get, go visit it and doing the full burr is going to take up like all like 50 hours at a time. Right. And instead they could bill out at 50 K. Right. It's do you need to go into the real estate investing journey? No, you might as well just be a lawyer and spend 50 hours there and earn your earn your money, right? Earn your worth. So instead, a lot of these guys will be great joint venture partners, right? Because they can just fund a deal instead of like being the active partner. Right. So those are the type of individuals that you want to attract for a JV versus if you're someone that's earning like minimum wage or you know, 20, 25 dollars an hour, real estate investing can be a great way to increase your wealth, like using the same amount of time, right? And, and obviously that's going to be easier said than done. I haven't been able to ever attract a doctor or a lawyer yet. Maybe, yes, lawyer possibly. I know I did a lawyer, but like that was just so far down my journey, right? You want to start with your inner circle. That's going to be family and friends. Those are going to be the easiest people to raise money from. And if you're going down the private money route, then you can raise in small increments, right? You can raise like 60 G's here, 50 G's there. As long as you're okay with it, likely it's going to be a promissory note. Um, and one issue that, or not issue, one mind's limiting belief that said limiting, no, limiting, just losing it this morning. One limiting belief that a lot of new investors have is, is that they want their first deal to be a home run. And that is likely not going to be the case, especially given that you're just sharpening your tool set. You don't have any knowledge on running numbers, on renovations, on predicting on budgeting things that are going to be over budget and and adding even a bit more to that, right? Like it's things that you just learn from experience. And it's very difficult to get something as a home run deal the first time around without including appreciation. There are a lot of investors who have done it, but they've done it during an appreciating market. Mayu and I have done it several times and we do attribute the full burr a lot of the times to appreciation. We want to go to good burr nonetheless. But very rarely do you count you do you get a full burr assuming zero percent growth in the market and just oh sorry my you wanted to add something on I was just gonna say and the other way that you the, what you should try to do in a burr right is you're gonna end up with whatever your net investment is after you do the buy renovate rent finance right so let's call it fifteen grand right and this is how I've traditionally looked at it so if my net investment is fifteen grand sure your ROI matters your cash on cash matters all that stuff matters but I also just look at okay what's my savings rate right. And let's just call it like a year or two years ago, whatever it was, I was basically saving like three to $4,000 a month, right? So I was like, hey, this project's going to take me about six months for me to do the full refinance, right? And then when I'm ready to repeat during those six months at $3,000 a month, I would have accumulated another $18,000 in capital just for my natural savings, right? So whatever your net investment is, what I like to tell people is if it's very close to your natural savings rate, you won't actually feel that net investment, right? Because whatever money you get out, now you've also accumulated new savings, right? Or maybe along the way, you use those savings to fund your renovations, right? Which then allows you to get more capital out, right? But that's kind of how I look at a bird. I never, like, we, we've never really targeted a perfect bird. Those are like pretty near impossible to get without market appreciation, right? And the unicorn deals and the risk that you face as an investor is by chasing that unicorn deal, you might, as, you might be kind of leaving really good deals on the table. That and also what chasing unicorn deals, a lot of the time they do require significant amount of renovation. So now you're exposing yourself um, to more risk from investor risk point of view. If it's your first deal and you're not too sure about construction, then that's going to be a hindrance in, in, in making that deal pan out to be the perfect deal. 
Um, okay, and then so so we talked about the burr. I don't think we need to go into each step of it. We've had several episodes on that. Check out our first couple episodes where we we dive into detail about the burr. Another thing that you can explore is wholesaling. Um, and and I think we did chat briefly about wholesaling. We had a couple of wholesalers on this episode, but in layman's term, basically what that means is is that you are trying to find deals directly from motivated sellers um, through different marketing channels. And once you get that, once you find a deal, you get it under contract and you sell it to an investor without even ever closing on it. So really, you're only out your deposit and you're going to get your deposit money back. Usually that's 500 to 1000 bucks and uh, you make that spread in between. So that's what wholesalers do. Um, and one thing to be aware of is, is it's pro it is always possible to wholesale, right? But there are some more challenging environments that make wholesaling more difficult. And this is one of those more challenging environments currently. Reason being is, is because um, right now you have sellers who are anchored at such high prices and buyers who are kind of cooling off during the summer, wanting to take a break and relax. So you're in that la la land right now where people want high prices who are selling their properties and people who are like a buyers are, are easing off on demand. So it's a bit more tougher. But uh, if, if you're looking to get into wholesaling, my suggestion is to get started in low cost marketing. And what low cost marketing strategies are, are things that don't cost any money that still get you in the face of private sellers or people who can help you generate leads. So for example, some strategies for this, and I, I think we mentioned this before, is going on Kijiji and posting We Buy Houses ads. Now that doesn't work as effectively now because everyone is doing it, but it's still something that you should do consistently. Yeah. Another, sorry? Way Austin for that. <laughs> yeah, everyone is doing it. And I don't think we've gotten a good lead source from that for a while. Another interesting tactic that you can do is message for rent ads. And I think we did mention this before is go to for rent ads, look at properties that are even slightly distressed or maybe just not fully renovated and message those people who are renting it out and saying, I know this is out of the blue, but are you looking to possibly sell your house? And those can make for great lead sources. Again, the response rate might not be great, but I found that there's more consistent lead sources from that than just posting we buy houses ads. That's actually um, how I got my first wholesale that we, we did together, right, Austin, back in August or September. Yeah, exactly. And I've been teaching my bird dogs this as well. And my one of my bird dogs got a deal from two deals from this, from doing this over the past two and a half months, which equated to in total about 90, 90K in assignment fees from that. And that was just by doing the strategy again. And he's been grinding this out for four or five months. So the first couple of months, he wasn't getting any interest, but he was just consistent with it, right? Another way uh, to get off market leads is by calling anyone who touches, sees, or smells real estate. We talked about this before. I think we already talked about a lot of these points, but we just haven't summarized in one concise episode. Yeah. Um, so just to reiterate that point, what you want to do is you want to call like pest control companies, landscaping companies, uh, maybe divorce lawyers, probably not, but like, you know what I mean? Like anyone who might somehow, some way get in contact with motivated sellers or see properties out of distress. Talk to them and let them know, okay, look, I'm looking to, I'm an investor looking to close on properties um, that are in any condition I close in cash. And um, if you are able to bring a, a lead or someone who you might know who might be interested in selling, I'll be more than happy to give you a thousand dollar referral fee um, if I close on that property. So you just do that consistently. You know what I was just thinking about right in the middle of COVID? Uh, I, I, we might've talked about this on a previous episode. I don't know. But right in the middle of COVID, we were just kind of like half joking around with each other. We were like, hey, like, how do we get more deals, right? 
We're like, what if we go to a retirement home and we put up a sign that says, we buy houses, right? Those super rich, like luxury retirement homes where you know those people like own a shit ton of real estate, right? And like likely investment properties, right? So it's just like, you can get super creative with your, your the way that you kind of uh, attract deals. And it, it's often cheaper than kind of mass marketing and like mass just sending out like a shit ton of flyers, right? So like, like we tell a lot of our students, like do driving for dollars and then, you know, like go like door knock on the houses that meet a 10 out of 10 on your buying criteria. And then things that are like a six to eight out of 10, like just write down their address. And at least you can send out targeted mailers. So you don't have to spend out a crazy amount of money. Right. Yeah. Driving um, for dollars is a great method as well. Yeah. So I think Adam talked about it. So guys check out Adam's episode oh, yeah, where he yeah. talks about driving for dollars. Um, yep. If you want to learn a bit more about it. Yep. So wholesaling is a great source of active income. The other one is flipping. Uh, so flipping the way I do it, at least, is I generally just buy a lot of deals from wholesalers, right? So like, I really enjoy the renovation process and I just find um, it's easy to kind of be a master of one part of the process rather than trying to internalize the entire process. At some point, um, you do have to try and do that, right? But all the sources of, of free deal generation that Austin talked about, all that is a great way to source your own deals as well, right? And then ultimately what you're doing in flipping is what is very similar to the burr, right? It just kind of the profit margins that you want to obtain is based on everyone's personal goal, right? So if someone doesn't have an active business income, whether you're maybe, you know, thinking about jumping into real estate full time, flipping is a great way to kind of shorten that timeline, right? Because it can easily get you like very easily, you should be able to make at least like 40K on a flip, right? Um, and if you do two of those a year, that's about 80K in net income that you'd make on each, uh, like using two flips, right? The main hurdles I think with flipping is always going to come down to financing because the best deals generally don't meet bank financing requirements. So then you're going to have to go with private capital. That scares off a lot of people. Um, the second part is the best flipping deals usually require extensive renovations, right? Like down to stuff, like full gut renovations, which can A, take time. B, it, it might be scary for a lot of new investors because you don't know what you don't know. And that's even true for like myself and Austin. When we flip now, when we rip down drywall, we don't know what we're going to find behind that wall, right? Whether it's going to be mold, whether it's going to be shoddy electrical or no insulation or so many different things can happen in a flip. So your risk appetite has to be a lot higher to jump into flips, I think, right? But um, flipping ultimately is very similar to a burr. And right? if you want to get started in flipping, make sure that you can burr as well. You don't want to get caught doing a luxury flip and then you have no exit strategies if it doesn't work out. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the fourth strategy is Airbnb. And myself and Austin both don't really have too many Airbnbs. Aaron Bay did a really good episode on Airbnb. And Airbnb is one of those ways to significantly increase your cash flow on a monthly basis. And it's a scalable business model as long as you bring in, but this is true for a lot of businesses, right? So as long as you bring in the right systems and processes and people to help you out, anything is really a scalable business model. The, the problem with real estate investing, and Aaron actually had a really good story on this. The problem with real estate investing is, is that it's a, it's a low cash flow business, meaning cash flow is not significant across multiple properties, right? Um, so then it makes it hard for you to hire people and kind of bring in the right systems and processes that you need. So Airbnb, basically, there's a couple of different ways to do it. We also had Riley and, and James on talk about their Airbnb approach, right? One is you could go with the Airbnb arbitrage model, which basically requires like very little capital. All you really need to do is kind of sign up a lease and buy the furniture. But your risk is, is kind of significant because you're kind of tied up to this fixed monthly rent obligation that you have to pay to the landlord, right? And you're kind of making a lower spread. Um, the other model is you do the burr and then instead of renting it out long run, uh, you rent it out to, on Airbnb, right? Or even like medium term rentals, which are like six to 12 month kind of rentals that are furnished, right? Um, so those are both great ways to significantly increase your cash flow, give you a leg up as you kind of want to accumulate more and more capital for real estate investing. Ultimately, 
in my opinion, at least, uh, like real estate investing is the greatest preservation of wealth and the greatest wealth creator. Wholesaling, flipping, and Airbnb will make you great active income, which you can then use to reinvest into real estate. And as you get more experience, you can use all of these strategies in conjunction with each other. So you could flip, and if the flip doesn't work out, you can bird and Airbnb it at the same time, right? Or if you want to flip a property and decide against it, then you can wholesale it. Like as you can see, a lot of strategies in real estate are intertwined and a great investor can mix and mingle any of these strategies. Of course, you want to be an expert in one. You don't want to be chasing the shiny object syndrome and try to be an expert in each and every one of these aspects. But it just really shows the power of real estate investing. Um, For Mayu and I, our biggest limiting belief with Airbnb is how do we get the system set up from afar? But then we just have to connect with investors who have done that, right? I think me and Maya are experienced enough that we know that some things might not be our forte. And our way around that is just to network with people who have built a successful business model around that. And it's really the same as any other new investor. If something's not your forte, it's simply just surrounding yourself with the people who have done that particular strategy, picking their brain and, and learning from that. Um, I think, do we want to quickly, I guess, highlight about building a power team because I know that most of our audience are going to be long distance investors for the most part. Um, so we can just quickly gloss over that. I think we do already have an episode on it, but but I'll, I'll start off with a couple of uh, uh, key members. Um, one of them are going to be your real estate agent. Your real estate agent is going to be the person to help you pull your comparables, um, your ARV, so after repair value. You can't really do without a great real estate agent. Um, because they're going to give you most of the data that you need to analyze um, a deal. And uh, you, you get a good real estate agent simply by networking with other investors around that area. Or if there are no investors in that area, very unlikely, you can go on realtor.ca and look at real estate agents that consistently list multifamily properties because those people are going to be investor oriented, right? Because thus investors are using them to list their properties. Um, and I'll, I'll give another uh, power team member. It's going to be your contractor a lot of the times as well. Um, and to be honest, there's no easy way to, to get a great contractor. I don't think anyone can consistently get a great contractor in any market. They just want to point the finger at a market. They can't just get a great contractor there immediately. But there are ways to mitigate your risk of dealing with uh, a, a crappy contractor. And what you do is, is the same with anything else. You just get referrals. So you want to get referrals from investors. You want to get referrals from real estate agents because a good real estate agents know good contractors. If a real estate agent doesn't know a contractor, X them out. They're not investor oriented for the most part. So you, you ask your real estate agents, if you're working with property managers, they might know handymen who they can refer over to you. But essentially, the more people you speak to, the more referrals you get, the more names that you'll hear pop up again, right? And then it's just a matter of sending these people out to get a couple of quotes for you paying them for their time if you don't plan to use them, obviously, and then just comparing and matching the different quotes and, and asking any questions if need be. Mai, do you want to dig into some of the other team members? So I went over agent and contractors. Yeah, so, so I was just going to I was just going to add on to the contractor piece, right? So there's two main things that I want to say. One is that having good contractors has allowed myself and you also, I think, to significantly scale up, right? So there are multiple times we'd buy a property, we just told the contractors what we want done, just and they would just take care of it. Right. Um, there's times that that's put us in the ass, right? But there's times that that went great and that allowed us to keep focusing on buying more real estate and focusing on the refinances and various other parts of the bird, right? Even with my flip today, like I have contractors that I can rely on to kind of go and do the flip and 
really all I have to do is kind of buy the property, give them the vision, and then they'll take care of the rest, right? Um, so having a good contractor is key. The second thing I'll say is the way to not get good contractors is don't just go in a Facebook group and write, need a contractor in this area, right? Because 90% of actual investors that have contractors in that area aren't just going to start writing, hey, here's this guy's number and like this guy's name and like whatever, right? Um, what you want to do is you want to actually network, right? Which doesn't mean just go in a Facebook group and write a comment and send you a contract. Actually networking means messaging people, trying to schedule calls, going out to networking events when you can, right? And just making face-to-face relationships or at least over the phone relationship so that you can provide value to them and they can provide value to you well down the road, right? That's what actual networking is. I think if if we just went and, and wrote in, in, for example, the Wind City Facebook group, hey, like need a contractor in Windsor, 90, 90% sure the contractor that, that we actually use for most of our projects wouldn't show up there, right? Um, so that's a big, important kind of lesson for a lot of people because I see so many of these kind of comments in the Rise Facebook group. It's need a contract in this area, this area, whatever, and whatever. And it's just like not that many like people are going to be putting in their details, right? Uh, so, so you talk about realtor, contractor, property management is pretty key as well, right? Like have a property manager that you can rely on. Uh, you do have to kind of make sure that they're that they're addressing the vacancies on time. And there's a, there's a key balance between a property manager that addresses everything that the tenant wants and everything that you want as a landlord might be righteous and fair, but you know, you can't do every single thing, right? Like how many of us live in a house where there's something that we'd love to have fixed in the house, but you know, we just kick it down the road two, three months because we're like, we don't really want to spend the time on it right now. Right. So as a landlord, like you can still take your time and kind of do repairs as well, as long as it's not something that's urgent. Right. So realtor, um, contractor, property manager, uh, mortgage agents is all have always been key in my journey. Right. Because I've always had mortgage agents that I could just message on WhatsApp and just ask them a quick question and get some clarity on. So then that way, when I'm making an offer, I can just make that offer quickly and confidently, right? Um, who else? Realtor, mortgage agent, property manager, contractor. Um, yeah, I think that's every. I think there's also a couple there's of like things. insurance brokers as well. Oh yeah, insurance. Yeah. Yo, insurance brokers <laughs> are a key part of my business now. Yeah. Like uh, the amount of like times I just shoot a message, you go, "Hey man, I uh, totally forgot to message you." But I buy a property, it's closing in like a couple of days. Can you get something in order quickly? And they'll do it, right? Like they, as, once you find like a really good insurance broker that like responds really fast and like knows your product. Um, and the other thing that I'll Don't neglect that because that eats into your cash flow. Like where you need to work with a good insurance broker. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I agree. Insurance brokers, like the insurance payment will eat into your cash flow. But the, what I was just about to say would contradict this, which is when you find a good power team, you don't penny pinch, right? It's just, you know what, like I value that like you're actually going to offer me a good service. For example, like insurance broker charges, like, I don't remember what it is, but maybe like $100, $200 every single time you get a policy, right? But I value the luxury and convenience of being able to just shoot him an email and say, hey, can you give me a product for this? Here's the details on the property and he'll take care of the rest, right? So when you find good power team members, don't penny pinch. I think that's key. Um, most of my realtors always get like the full 2.5% of the flip where I'm paying for staging. That's a little bit different, right? But I don't really penny pinch on that. I think there's a couple of different ways a couple, a couple different tips that I'll tell people, but not kind of get like how not to get started in real estate investing. I think it's a common misconception that if you want to get started in real estate investing, you should get your realtor license. I don't think that's actually like effective utilization of your time. I think that constrains you geographically. And I think then you'll try and like buy your own investment properties in different markets on the MLS without relying on local experts. I think um, then right after that is people will go, okay, I'm going to become a mortgage agent once again. Like, because like when you're a real estate investor, Focus on the burr, right? Like focus on the buy, focus on the renovations, and then focus on the sales price or the refinance, right? And and that's really your your role as a real estate investor, right? So it's you know if you're gonna, if you're going to become a realtor, you might be really good on the buy, but then how are you going to spend time on every every other part of the burr, right? 
Uh, and then, yeah, so that kind of goes on to my last point. Just don't take on more than you can chew, right? Don't go for unicorn perfect deals. Um, I'm a strong believer, just kind of imperfect action over non-action. It, so I think that kind of wraps up our episode. So we just really want to talk to you guys about, you know, just getting started in real estate investing. I know a good amount of our listeners are new real estate investors, right? Um, whether you have one to maybe five or eight, six properties, like I'd classify that relatively new, right? Because a lot of people will get up to maybe two or three properties without being that serious about real estate investing because it is possible to just kind of end up there, right? But, you know, once you kind of get started and you get serious about real estate investing, I think uh, there is a lot of potential that you can make life-changing wealth. You can kind of create generational wealth very easily in real estate. Um, we've also been in one of the biggest bull markets in the last like 10, 20 years or something like that. Um, but you never know what the future will hold. And hindsight's always 2020, right? So just take action now and uh, buy good deals and move forward, guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode here today. Again, this is something a little bit different. Me and Maya wanted to just jump on and uh, spitball how to get started investing. It's something that comes up a lot. Um, I get that a lot in my DMs. So when someone DMs me, I can kind of just shoot them this link now. Um, <laughs> if, uh, if you guys enjoyed this episode and you'd like to see more of this, then make sure to let us know on our iTunes podcast. Shoot that as a comment, right? Because <laughs> we're trying to get our comments up and our and our likes, reviews up. Give us a five-star rating on uh, Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform that you guys use to listen to this podcast. Really keeps us motivated, which is what we need as well. Um, that's why we're kind of, we're slacking behind, but we'll be, we'll be back to your scheduled program of guests in the upcoming um, week. And uh, again, Guys, um, if you enjoyed this episode, share this with a friend, comment, subscribe, and look forward to seeing you guys next time. Until then, invest smarter and live better. Take care.